Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. On today's show, artist, activist, and community organizer Gabriel Ocasio-Cortez. Ocasio-Cortez talks about the impact of losing his father in his early teens. It's tricky. I think with me and my dad, we always had an early dissonance. The thing that I wish a lot more people in the queer community would take into consideration if it applies to them is that I think a lot of us have, you know, butted heads. Some of us have mended and that's phenomenal, but some of us are still sort of holding that disdain. I think if my dad didn't die, I would still probably hold that disdain. I think that his death sort of forced that introspection onto me at the same time that I lost my hearing. Coming out to his family at 26, I definitely for a while thought that, you know, I had to be, you know, married with a man and I don't know, celibate even though I was married and and drive a Honda or something and like wear like turtlenecks in order to be accepted. But it it took, I mean, I would say it took until recently to sort of abandon that. I didn't even feel coming out to my family until I was 26 and in a relationship because I didn't want to be perceived as I don't know, sexually tumultuous or something like that. And the ongoing and unrelenting attacks on his sister, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I'm still a human being, and if you come after me and my sister, you're going to hear it. It's just that simple. I'm still her brother, I'm still protective, and I'm still just a guy from the Bronx, and I'll let you have it. Shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan. Hey guys, what's up? It's Evan Ross Katz, and you are listening to Shut Up Evan, a podcast about gay shit and internet culture. I'm Evan Ross Katz. I'm joined once again by my producer, Matt, aka Stormageddon. Hi, Matt. Hi, Evan. We are super excited today because we have one of the songwriters of... I was just saying to him prior to hitting record on this that I think it might be one of the biggest earworms of the past 100,000 years. It really is the song that not only has been stuck in my head, it's the song that whenever I play it for anybody, by the end of the song, they are already singing the song, which to me is really the mark of a great earworm. Um, Joining us right now is the wonderful and talented Leland. Hi. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Um, let's get right to it. I mean, I just want to know, did you have any sense prior to the episode area? And just for context sake, this is a song called UK Hun. Bing, bang, bong, sing, sang, song, ding, ding, dong, UK Hun. Dancing to a Highland chick, Lawrence Cheney's up in this gig from Helensburgh to Edinburgh. Everywhere I go, I'm snatching wigs. I made my name in Glasgow City. Can't sing or dance, but I'm so witty. Me and my dolls are on a mission. Gonna take this great for it was performed by two groups of four competing on a challenge in the second season of RuPaul's Drag Race UK. 
if you're not watching Drag Race UK, that's a separate conversation, but you deserve mm-hmm. a spanking because it is absolutely <laughs> top tier. Did you have any idea that this song was going to become the breakout hit that it's become? I had no clue. Absolutely not. No, you know, with working on a show like Drag Race, the pace that we have to churn these songs out and move on to the next is so quick that there's really not a lot of time to dwell on what did we just make. Uh, and also there's such a, a, a long amount of time that passes between the creation of the song and the episode airing that there's, uh, you know, 15 things in between. And then you're like, oh wait, okay, that's airing this week, great. And then you see the impact. And, um, and yeah, it's just been really fun. I, I love when, when something like this happens. It's not that I have a lot of experience in something quite like this happening. But uh, but all of this just feels like bonus and it shines a, a spotlight on the queens and gives them an even bigger platform and creates a wealth of opportunities for them, which is wonderful. And, uh, and yeah, I, I just love, you know, all the ridiculous things that a moment like this leads to. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it, it's, we were already so in love with these queens, but I think it endears you to each of the, them so much more because... In addition to their obvious talents, you get you kind of just get to know each of their sensibilities more. I mean, mm-hmm. like one of the great things about a song like this is every verse feels so uniquely the Queens, you know? Talk to me about sort of developing this song from the jump. Like what was the prompt you were given and and how did you how did you execute? Sure. So, you know, we work with uh, Freddie Scott and myself who wrote this song, uh, work with an incredible team over there. And so the producers will give us the, just the, the prompt of what they're thinking for the challenge and what to be inspired by. And I'm already a big fan of Eurovision. So this was a, uh, like needless to say, this was a, an ideal uh, project or a song to have to uh, come up with. And um, and yeah, I mean, recently, in the I would say in the past three or four years, I've fallen in love with the premise of Eurovision with the gayness with the campness of Eurovision with um with the the cheesiness of it with uh with how in love the rest of the world seems to be with it you know so um so I was just really excited and spent a lot of time watching past Eurovision performances studying not studying but I mean these songs are already in my DNA the songs I grew up with like uh um Mary Pop, you know, I grew up watching Mary Poppins and Supercalifragilistic, ex- just songs that mean nothing but feel amazing. And I'm not putting uh, UK Hun next to it, but it's there were lots of uh, songs that served as inspiration that truly just have nonsensical lyrics. So really, the uh, main objective is for the melody to feel cyclical uh, and for it to feel like it just. Uh, could potentially never end and drive someone to complete madness. Um, Yeah. So it's intentional because one thing that I pointed out up top is you can listen to this song and by the end of it, be singing along. Mm -hmm. Um, And so was that, obviously it sounds like that was an intentional part of this process in building a song that the listener can not only be enjoying, but feel like they're a part of without even having heard it all the way through one time. Yeah. You know, with songs like this, so much of it is not overthinking it. I've been writing songs 
writing songs, not professionally or successfully for like 10, 15 years, but I've been writing songs for a long time. And so now yeah, you have. it really is just uh, pulling from the right references and letting your first instincts do the work. And so we, you know, I, I came up with the Bing Bang Bong lyric and then it was just a bit of a puzzle sorting out if Ding Dang Dong comes next or Sing Sing Song. And then I think the most amount of time, we probably spent an hour or so uh, on the uh, rhythm, the phrasing of Ding Dang Dong. You know, that really was, if anything took a second, it was that just uh, wondering how do you make that phrase feel complete and then the melody of UK Hun uh, be the payoff and then do it again. So that really was, I, I would say, the most we thought something through. But this was, yeah, I, I didn't. We didn't really craft it to be like we want everyone to be able to uh, become obsessed with this or sing along. It was how do we best serve the queens, give them something uh, ridiculous but fun to play off of, and you know, with Drag Race, really anything goes. And right. the more when I coach the queens. On camera, I'm always telling them, until you feel ridiculous and like you are doing too much and a little bit embarrassed, that's when it translates as, uh, that's when you're doing it correctly. And that's when you'll listen back and feel like, oh, my energy is is there. So we just tried to give them a, a great canvas to work with and a, and a blueprint to work with. And they really rose to the occasion. And I, I actually loved both groups. So it's always interesting. And we I didn't know when we were working on it, you know, I didn't really know the cast at all um, or who was who or what had happened prior when getting these verses. So it's uh, it's always nice to put the faces to the voices and the right. personalities to the voices and um, and see the dynamics between the two groups. Absolutely. I mean, I, I for people that don't know, one of the versions um, from the United King Dolls, which is the group name that they chose for the challenge, which very well might become a, a real group moving forward. It seems, and this is just a conjecture, it seems that those four girls are the four girls that very likely will make it into the top four. And that is the version that I think I've been playing the most. That said, the other version is equally very very good it's one of those things it's like it's a sophie's choice in some senses Mm -hmm. um so that's one of the really great things about it um another thing that i love about this song i believe correct me if i'm wrong we get a double key change there are two key changes no correct okay Okay. first of all thank you uh second of all (laughs) you know you mentioned ridiculousness and and i think that you know who doesn't love a key change but there's something incredibly drag about adding that second key change in because it's like you know i i don't know i don't know anything about songwriting but i imagine that a key change is kind of to like build up some 11th hour hype and then what you did by adding that second one in is like re-energize the already re-energized uh version you know and so Mm -hmm. can you talk to me about sort of the decision to just add that adrenaline rush over an adrenaline rush absolutely you know the team that we work with is just incredible and and gives such great notes and i am appreciative for the collaborative process i've learned so much collaborating with the uh drag race producers and they are a, a wealth of knowledge and uh, influence and things that, you know, I grew up in a super conservative home. So there are so many things that I missed the first 20 years of my life that now I'm able to, uh, you know, when we were able to work in person, Tom Campbell would sit me down and be like, you need to watch this. You need to watch this. You need to watch this. 
And uh, and I spent a lot of quarantine watching Barbara Streisand movies that, and and finally being like, why have I not seen this before? You know, I grew up watching Julie Andrews movies, but for some reason, Barbara Streisand didn't make it quite into the the regular lineup of, of things that our family watched. So um, going to your question, yeah, we sent them the song with no key changes and got the note, we love it, add a key change. We did that, sent it back. And you know, when you make a key change, you have to, uh, you have to sing everything again. So we sang the Bing Bang Mong choruses and then we sang it again. And, uh, and then we sent that back and they're like, great, we love it, give us one more. And so then we sang it a third time. And you also can, uh, you know, with auto-tune, nudge the vocals up a little bit. And it actually creates uh, sonically a sound that we love. It, it makes the uh, sound a little more like mousy in a way and almost a little more annoying. Uh, so it all just sort of made sense. But yeah, it was great notes from the team. And the two, you know, key changes right now are a little unconventional, just not really being utilized. So I think when they do happen, it's uh, it's a little bit shocking to the ear, but you know, for for what this song is going to do now off the show, uh, meaning Queens performing and at drag shows or uh, the song being played in clubs or house parties, the key changes are that extra that is going to just uh, make people go crazy. Without question. I mean, yeah. every time. And I keep having these moments where the song ends and I hit play once again. And I'm like, do I really want to do this over again? And then by the time yes. I get to that second key change, I'm like, of course I want to do this over again. It like rehooks you back in Evan, yes. every time. Like you're just like, oh, it's back. Yes. You just keep going. Without question. Talk to me about having the eight of them there and recording their verses. How much of that collaboration is that? Have you ever had a situation where one of them comes in and they're like, here are my lyrics? And you're like, hmm, where do we go from here? Or conversely, have you ever had a time where someone's come in, lay down a take, and you're just like, okay, winner, winner, chicken dinner? Yeah, I mean, yes, to to all of the above, you know, my, thankfully we had a, a dear friend who is truly one of the best at what he does. We had m &E there in the person best. to record with the Queens. And when I was having conversations with him about recording, you know, it, it was sort of a, we didn't really need to have the conversation, but just to drag race is such a, a different beast in its own. And you have such a limited time with the Queens. We were just simply like talking about the checklist of, of, things to get from the Queens to make sure we have, when we're sent the vocals, everything we need. So um, so he did such a good job just making sure that we got, that he brought out the best in each Queen because our job isn't to, if, if a Queen walks on stage and their lyrics or their performance isn't strong, our job isn't to capture that. Our job is to bring the best out of them and work with them uh, revising the lyrics on the spot. And all of this you see on camera, uh, revising the lyrics on the spot. If, um, if they're singing it and the singing isn't necessarily working, encouraging them to rap it or speak it um, because that can be sometimes more effective. You know, don't sing as default if that's not your strength. So right. encouraging them to play to their strengths, try something different. But yes, I've had Queens come out on stage and I was, and, and I, tell them and think to myself, okay, we've got a lot of work to do in a limited amount of time. Or they come out and uh, and I'm like, we, we spent the first five minutes getting their verse take. Now let's have some fun 
try new things, see if we can, we, it's like once it's there, then you get to mess with it. So it's really, it really just depends on how quickly we get to that point with the queen. Do we spend the whole time just trying to get a great verse or are we able to get that immediately and then have fun with it, see if we can create moments, give them some ad libs. Um, you know, so really with, with this song, with UK Hun, each queen came out prepared from what it seems. And so then we were able to have fun with it, getting Bimini on the pre-chorus and, and, uh, and separating the clap for the bing bang bong and making sure we had the right takes of that. You know, in a regular pop session, uh, working with an artist in the studio, we have an unlimited amount of time. So with this, not only is there pressure to get great takes, but to make sure that, you know, we have everything we need. So the stars really have to align multiple times right. for a song like this to turn out as good as it did. And I do just want to point out, like, outside of just the songwriting and the performances, this song is just so well produced. It's so well mixed. There are so many elements to this song that it's not just, like, a cute, good listen. I think part of what I think so many of us are responding to is the slickness of this mm. song. It's just so masterfully constructed. So credit to everyone. Uh, thank you. Freddie, Freddie Scott produced it, and it's just amazing. And we've done it for a long time, and... You know, we get better every time. You know, as we get better at this job, uh, hopefully the quality improves. And that's something that, yeah, we've just tried to bring every time is make it better, mix it better, make this the production better. Uh, just constantly trying to raise the bar and beat what we've done before. Yeah, well, uh, as someone on the receiving end of what you're serving, like, I am buying it. That's so nice. Thank you. Eight, eight uh, queens featured on the two different versions of this song. I got to ask you, who has the best verse? I mean, I, I have a few different favorites for, for different reasons. I loved the lyrics of Joe Black's verse. I, Me I mean, too. Glenn Close, but no cigar is <laughs> I, I, I don't have any tattoos yet, but that is that is really close that I was like, and I think I'm getting one, you yeah. know, Either a picture of like Glenn Close smoking a cigar or the lyric or something. Yeah. <laughs> also, I have to just say when he says uh, camp witch, I always hear come witch, okay. um, which yeah. is a, a lovely uh, misconstrued <laughs> lyric in my mind. <laughs> oh, I, I love that. But I, I do love, you know, I'm, it's not surprising to say that I, I do love Bimini's verse for the lyrical content of it and for the, the fact that this song is getting played on BBC Radio One. This song is getting played everywhere. And the the lyric, what the Queens brought um, is is a bit of, uh, I don't know, not, not controversial. It, it's just them. And that in itself is a little controversial, you know? Uh, so I, I love that. I love Bimini's verse. I love that certain lines of her verse now are, are like transcending and, and making uh, having moments uh, themselves. So I just think there's, there's so much uh, positivity. There's so much good energy surrounding their lyrics. There's so much uh, just authenticity and yes. for that to be embraced by the UK mainstream outlets is so wonderful. Yes. Um, and I appreciate that answer. I have to say, if there is one verse, as you sort of alluded to there, that I think has transcended 
the others. And let me be clear here. I think that they're all functioning on a very high level. I just think that Bimini's, Bimini's verse is kind of taking me to another planet. And I guess I just want to ask about that. Uh, and as you mentioned, the lyrical content, but also there's something about that moment that I think just put Bimini into a different headspace for a lot of the fans who, mm-hmm. as she lyricizes, might have been sleeping on her a little bit and mm-hmm. woke up to all the glory that is Bimini. I just am curious, like, for your response when you first got the, is it called a master edit or what is it called when you have the first, like, complete version of the song? We Yeah, we're given the the master when it's, like, mixed and mastered. <sighs> okay. the, the Yeah. Look, I'm basically a songwriter. Yeah, you're, you're killing. You know, I taught <laughs> Tyler it. Oakley probably ten years ago the word stems, mm. and which is when we are given the vocals, we're given to them as stems. You bounce the. You know, I'm sure you guys know that. So I don't. Um, so, but okay. I do, but well, it's, it's okay. Yeah, it's audio files. <laughs> you know, the same thing. We're recording a podcast. Yeah, but I, I taught Tyler the the term stems years ago. So now he'll he'll always ask me, "How are the stems? Where are the stems?" Just in general. <laughs> I get but it. Yes, that's that's the correct term. Yeah, I learned uh, native audio, and that's like my favorite thing to sort of just throw out sometimes <laughs> and be like, oh, "I'm recording native audio," and then they'll always yes, be really yes. impressed. And I'm like, "That's yes. the, the one term I know." Yeah, but I mean, talk to me about that that Bimini verse when you first heard it, because I think uh, the thing that I think many of us are responding to is from the jump. Her very first lyrics are "Release the beast, Bimini," and just mm-hmm. both the lyrics and the delivery it just it, it lets you know it reminds me if I may it reminds me of Christina Aguilera's verse in Lady Marmalade mm. which is to say that all three of the verses that precede it are next level iconic yes but yes, there's something yes. about that Christina entrance at the end mm-hmm. that just takes it to another level and that's sort of the how I sort of think of the Bimini verse what was your reaction to it you know I'm, I'll be honest my reaction because we're like I said, you know, we're moving so quickly, and I did not know the personality or even the look associated with that queen or any of the queens that I I simply was listening to make sure you could hear every queen, to make sure the quality was good, to make sure no one was distorting or peaking, and to make sure the mix was good. So I wasn't really I'm listening, you know, you listen with different ears uh, or and for di- with different intentions. So I didn't really pay attention and didn't really have an impact on me then because I was just, we're very focused on making sure that um, that everyone is equally heard and that there's no one, you know, that, that there's no mistakes quality wise. Mm-hmm. And so it really wasn't until I watched the episode and and had the context of the previous episodes and then saw the song start to do what it did on TikTok and Twitter, and then saw people start to zero in on Bimini's verse. And then it clicked for me too, being like, oh my God, this verse is so fucking good. And I, you know, every challenge is a different opportunity for a queen to show that they are a superstar. So when a queen perfectly executes that, it's really exciting because like you said, then people start to see that queen, not even as a, um, competitor anymore but as a star exactly so it's very much obviously still a competition but when you have someone who really is able to show and you could tell she loves writing music she loves rapping she loves she just it was just effortless and um and it's just is very exciting 
It's kind of like, as you said, it's like, whether or not Bimini is the winner of the season, she is a winner just as a result of that verse alone, but so much more that she's contributed. To fans of Bimini's, uh, I want to implore you to keep listening to Shut Up, Evan, because I have a feeling um, Bimini might pop up at some point. Oh, um, that's amazing. Couple last questions before you go. This is what I think a lot of people are curious about. To the extent that you're comfortable talking about it, I would love to know about the economy of writing these songs in terms of are the queens profiting from them? Are you profiting from them? When you have a song like this that is rising up the charts, I imagine there's money to be made. Um, how does that structuring work? Yeah, you know, I, I that's definitely not my thing to speak on, but I think if there were any issues, you would hear about it. You know, World of Wonder has done such a good job over the years of taking care of everyone. And um, and I genuinely love working for them. Uh, and everyone is a writer on the song. And that is something that, uh, you know, when, when you write a song, you do the splits of the song for uh, publishing. So everyone is a writer on the song. Everyone uh, is credited from the song. You know, I don't know how the deals work, uh, because also in different territories, there's different rules. So just as with BBC, they can't give cash prizes like they do in the US, there's different rules per government where it's airing. So I don't know the details of that, but I know that everyone is taken care of and everyone is feeling good and positive. And I wouldn't expect someone to promote a song where they're not uh, seeing seeing something from it. But also, you know, for example, with Brock Destroyers, once that song did so well, uh, we all uh, sat down and said, do we want to make a project together? And the answer was a resounding yes. So, um, and even in that moment, that was uh, such a wonderful experience. Like we making an album with those girls during quarantine and co-writing those songs. Uh, You know, there were a couple songs on the album I wrote completely alone, but then there were songs where we got to do what we what we do similarly to the show where we uh, collaborate on verses and had such a good time. So, yeah, it all um, you know, I, I can't speak for something that I don't know about, but uh, but I know that it it's all good. And to your point, I think uh, very well stated, if there was sort of some kind of discrepancy at all, we would hear about it from the queens. Um, just, they're not shy. Know, yeah, they're not <laughs> no. about that whatsoever. Not. Which song would you say, because within the pantheon of Drag Race uh, songs, there really is just such a robust catalog. I think a lot of us are very partial to Red You Wrote You for obvious reasons. Oh it my is God, it's greatness. But iconic. You, it's absolutely iconic. I also, I, I miss the, the length of those verses is something that I wish more RuPaul's Drag Race songs had just because it really gives you like, I think 45 seconds or something to really hear these girls. But if you were to say the best song within the Drag Race universe, does one immediately come to mind for you? I mean, Read You Wrote You is truly uh, a pillar song of the Drag Race franchise. And that's a song that I wasn't a part of. And and that happened before I started working on the show. And, you know, there are moments where you see songs, whether it's from an artist or a show like this, and you're like, they don't need me, but fuck, I would love to be a part of that. You know, and, and that that's something that like happened with Selena when I heard uh, hands to myself and things like you know songs like that it's like you know they don't they don't need me but fuck I would really love to contribute something to you know to her discography and and the same thing with with drag race you know once I 
once I found out what drag race was, which wasn't until I moved to LA and I've lived here for 12 years, but wasn't until I moved to LA and went over to a friend's house and he was like, oh, we're, we're having a drag race watch party. I was like, okay. And I remember sitting and watching drag race for the first time. And, uh, and it was, I, I really would say, read you wrote you where I was just like, oh my God, the perfect combination of Queens, um, the precision, the, that song performance and every single verse is just so polished. And so that's really what excited me to be a part of it. You know, we've had, whether it's rusicals uh, or songs, we've had some great moments. You know, I'm that bitch writing yes. a song for Rue is, is just like the end all for me. It's, it's so wonderful uh, to work with someone who is very much, it feels like in their renaissance and, and inspired and excited. And, and um, so, yeah, I'm that bitch was an amazing moment and seeing and having Nikki there for that episode was incredible. And the Queens definitely rose to the occasion, absolutely delivered it. Um, I love uh, Gigi's verse from that one. Um, and, uh, and, you know, Break Up Bye Bye, that was such a pleasant surprise. Uh, I wrote the chorus for Break Up Bye Bye when I was in a dress, I was on tour opening for Troy Savan and I was in a dressing room in Germany. And we were like, they were like, we need this in like two hours. So Freddie and I just quickly work something up and I sang a voice memo, break up, bye-bye, send it to him. He put the music underneath. And so, I mean, some of these can happen so quickly and then some uh, become a, a, a little bit more laborious. But, uh, but yeah, I, I love, and, and UK Hun has very much, you know, I am grateful for what it did and I also apologize for what it did uh, because <laughs> it seems to be, uh, it seems to just uh, not, I went to dinner last night with a couple friends and they were like, yeah, we, we love the song and we're happy. We like, we love it. But also I legitimately think about it at night and have trouble sleeping. I get uh, it. I really, yeah. <laughs> but I think one of the great things is like, you have this song that's by queer people on a queer show performed by queer people that queer people are loving. It's just so fucking queer in all of its uh, tentacles of existence. I think that's one of the great things about it. I want to thank you so much for being here. I want to encourage people to find you on social, to check out your music, both the music that you write and the music you perform. You are so fucking talented. Um, I do have to ask too, are you single? Yes. Okay, and Excellent. I only ask this because when I go on the like the Drag Race uh, Reddit page, there's always right. so many people thirsting over you, and so I just thought that for journalistic purposes, that is so funny. I've never visited the Drag Race Reddit page, and I don't plan to. Well, you are yeah. a very popular entity <laughs> over there, so uh, I'm not going to encourage you to do it. But I'll just say that your uh, people are very much enjoying what both they're hearing and what they're seeing. Um, That's so, very sweet. as he mentioned, he is single. Um, I want to thank you so much for your time. I want to congratulate you on this song i mean you've had many milestones in your career so i think this is just but another um and i just i can't wait to keep following you you've been one of my absolute favorite artists to watch for a long time now and it's so wonderful just to see your continued success that's so nice thank you you know i feel like i i i feel you know looking back i'm i can't believe some of the things that have happened but i feel like i'm just getting started and it's so exciting i feel yeah every time something like this happens i'm like fuck okay just getting started you know let's do it so that's so sweet thank you so so much it is uh drag working on drag race is an absolute dream job that i did not know existed when i first started writing songs 
And those are usually the best ones that you're like, wait, I, I didn't even know I could do this with this. So I hope to do it for a really long time. Totally. I want to thank you again. Uh, and now we are going to turn over to our interview with Gabriel Ocasio-Cortez. Yes, let's do it. He is an artist, an activist, a community organizer, and an advocate. He's also known for being a starting point in Congresswoman AOC's political career, having nominated and submitted his sister for a congressional bid in 2017. In addition to serving families in the Brooklyn community experiencing homelessness as his nine to five, he has spent his adult life advocating for deaf and hard of hearing inclusivity and content accessibility, as well as being a fighter in the crusade for queer liberation for all queer people, but especially the most marginalized among us. In his free time, he likes to get parking tickets while simultaneously breaking the stereotype that gays can't drive. He also hates chocolate, but loves starbursts. He is determined, unflappable, compassionate, articulate, resilient, nimble, impassioned, and so much more. He doesn't just want a better future, he is willing to fight to get it. He is Gabriel Ocasio-Cortez. Gabriel, how are you? Quite an intro, I'm doing great. <laughs> so I want to start off before we get into like the primary interview by asking how you're doing and how your family is doing, particularly because it's been a few weeks now since the Capitol insurrection that I know terrified our nation. And I know the aftershock of that is continuing to reverberate for many. And I know you have some direct proximity to it all. So I just wanted to check in and see how you and your family are doing. Yeah, I mean, for lack of a better words, it's still difficult to really understand the depth of what actually occurred. You know, I'm very grateful that everyone in my family, and of course, including my sister, we're all fine. It's definitely just a very real reminder of how fragile even the strongest institutions are, at least what we consider very strong and very established. It's just a huge reminder that all of it is still very much man-made. And you can light a fire and it can, it can burn down the things that are old and destructive to our society. But at the same time, if the wrong people light a fire, you know, it can tear down the things that we hold very sacred. So it's a, it's a huge reminder. And I think the fear of that day is still with a lot of people, definitely with a lot of people. Yeah. And I imagine in your particular instance, there's the typical fear that, you know, American citizens have. And then, as I mentioned, your particular proximity to it by way of your sister. What is it right. like experiencing that duality in that sense? What sort of, if at all, compartmentalization did you have to do in sort of understanding the trauma from both as a regular citizen and as someone in your particular position? It, it took me a while to not take attacks from certain, you know, right-wing people personally, whenever they were coming after my sister, because it was just part of the process, if you will. Although some of the attacks would be personal, it's not because they actually have an issue with her and her existence. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's because of a contrary ideology, but it took me some time to sort of differentiate that, or at least detach emotionally from these figureheads on the right. But I think the sixth I think it undid any type of separation that I was able to achieve. And the reality is that I can't not take it personally. You know, there are people in the government that are representing thousands of people, some millions, and they can go to sleep at night, even though they were complicit in attempting to overthrow our government and murder people on the left, including my sister, people that were duly elected to represent their districts. It's just insane. Yeah. One other question I wanted to ask you was with regards to your sister's Instagram live that she did that 
very, very powerful hour-long Instagram Live that she did. It's now available online for people that want to watch it, in which she talked about her own experiences, quite personal experiences, that sort of led her to want to come forward and speak to the gaslighting that was taking place by some of her Republican colleagues. And I'm just wondering what that experience was like for you to see someone that you're so close to come forward with such a powerful story of their own personal experience. And again, one that we don't often see people in political power in our country come forward to say. It's definitely one of the stranger and more humbling ways of being breathtaking, I guess. Being being related and being directly affiliated to someone that's so well-known, especially for someone that's well-known for being so inspiring and for being so ideology-based. Sorry, I, I still like, I, I still have trouble even sort of conceiving the notion, but I very well still have accepted what reality is. And I've been able to desensitize myself to a lot of the games that are played, um, especially in politics. But when it, when it came down to that, it was just, it doesn't change the fact that, you know, I'm still her brother and, you know, anything that hurts her, you know, kills me. It's, it was, it's awful. So I want to go back to your early life. But before we do that, I want to start by just getting a check-in on Drag Race. Obviously, I know we're both big fans of Drag Race. And I wanted to ask, what is it that you love most about the show Drag Race? I love the organic moments. You know, I, I think it's about the moments where they're willing to show us exactly who they are unintentionally. You know, it's it's those moments where we actually feel like we're getting an unstaged reveal. I like the quirky characters. I like the ones that are just unapologetically themselves. And it's their experience of sort of living outside of the traditional rubric, even in drag, that I think just makes them so attractive. Do you have a, when I say favorite queen, is there one that comes to mind for you immediately? I would say Katya. Katya, yeah. Ka I mean, Katya is my favorite, hands down, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about ableism on the show. There's been a number of instances through the years in which the show has been accused of ableism. One immediate moment that comes to mind is a season 10 runway that used wheelchairs as props. Most recently, Tamisha Iman, competing on the show's 13th season, revealed in the confessional that she was competing with an ostomy bag after battling colon cancer. She chose not to tell the judges out of fear of special treatment. What were your thoughts on seeing this and your general feeling around the show with regard to ableism? I, I love what she did, by the way, just to start there. I have so much respect for her because there are a lot of people that, um, in any type of similar setup, would try to bring that out at the last second to you know, keep their foot in the game. And it might very well work. So the fact that she was very much ready and willing just to you know, keep that to herself and keep going through all the emotional and physical extras that, that come with you know, having a certain disability is amazing. But a lot of the things that, that society and um, at least myself, that I, the, the problems that I have with drag race also echo into the fashion community. You know, it's RuPaul's Drag Race is definitely a microcosm of the gay community, the fashion community, and the cliques within them. And I think it was Louis Vuitton, or maybe it was Mugler that they had done a photo shoot of, I'd say like 10 years ago, around like paparazzi time, where they were using wheelchairs as accessories. When you have that level of that lack of tact for the sake of optics, we have a huge moral crisis. You know, it's like we're trying to, as a society, create content and engage 
the sexually disenfranchised, if you will, but at what expense, you know? Lacking that and having that reflect on the show is really sad because that also is a huge reflection of the staff that's within RuPaul's Drag Race. Because if we had people with disabilities that have at least even just life experience with people close to them with disabilities, if we had that on the spectrum of their leadership, we wouldn't have those issues where they were using wheelchairs as props. Right. Yeah. And I think what's interesting about in the case of Tamisha is that she chose to share the story with the audience, which I think was really important because it gave all of us, even us having this conversation now, some perspective and understanding the fact that there are hardships that people both on that show and in life go through that aren't always known to everybody. I think there's this assumption oftentimes on a show like Drag Race where everything that we're seeing on camera is the person's story. Everything that they choose to share with us is their story. And so often because these girls come in and really open up their hearts and share intimate details of their past, particularly traumas, there's an expectation, I feel, at least as a viewer, that by the end of your run, we'll know your trauma. You know, it will be it will be laid right. out. And I think Tamisha's journey shows us through her admission and her talking heads, but not to the judges on the runway, that you don't always know a person, even if you know a big part of a person, or even if they choose to share with you one part of their journey, that is not the complete journey. I thought that was one of the right. great things that came away from Tamisha's run on the show. Definitely. I would agree. I think understanding is such a word that people need to reflect on. I think everybody wants to understand and everybody feels such a strong desire to to sort of achieve that because that would make them feel as if they've done something that they want to to do. But in reality, you know, no one's going to understand. They're going to, you know, attempt to empathize and that's good. Attempts to, to empathize and attempts to understand are good. But the reality is that if you haven't lived it, you won't get it. And, you know, I, under, I understand as someone with, with a disability withholding that information, if I know that it's not going to change anything, you know, realistically is that we know that it, she knew that if she was going to release that information, she was going to get empathy, but it would likely be paired with sympathy. Because also this is a show where RuPaul and, and their board, if you will, the judges panel, have to react to what's given to them. Right. So just emotionally reacting is not going to be enough for the viewers. You have to do something that's then sympathetic and then keep them on, which, you know, Tamisha Mon wasn't looking for. She wasn't looking for special treatment. And that would have been the natural flow of things if the information had came out. How do you think the show, and I and I mean Drag Race, but I also mean, you know, as you said, this is really a problem that's much bigger than Drag Race. It's present in the queer community. It's present in the fashion community, as you mentioned. And it's, it's present in many communities. How do we do more to call in these institutions in the hope of creating systemic change? You know, I think it ties back directly to cancel culture. In my opinion, is that everybody with a little bit of power is so scared of being canceled, especially if they have good intentions. Because I think in their heads, they can hold this sort of idea of, you know, I'm not a bad guy. I'm not a bad person. I don't want to lose my spot just because of one little thing. That, that very real fear of cancel culture creates this brick wall. I think that if we were a little bit less quick to jump towards cancellation and just a little bit quick towards, you know, creating suggestions and sort of leading with a positive 
mentality you know like a pma right and then lawrence is like fuck off (laughs) (laughs) but it's 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 that it's that pma it it, but it really is if we were Mm. to actually you know say hey there's some things that are off um you know i think it would be great if we could get some more deaf talent you know or, or if we could get some more people with disabilities on your staff i think across these levels it would just generally increase the quality of this production and be more inclusive that as a statement is way more likely to get a positive reaction and an open reaction than, you know, we want blood because right. of X, Y, Z, right. you know, if we're actually looking for that long-term change, you know, there's, there's time and places to get violent, you know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? But we, we have to acknowledge the systems that are at play and what's actually going to get things going. You know, if we try to just hit them with that negativity, we're not going to get that insight as to what their organizational chart is, you know, and that's, that would be a great show of them to, to display that out and say, hey, here's who we've got. Take a look. Instead right. of just hiring, you know, a chief diversity officer, and then that makes you feel good. And they put them all out on you know, their advertisements. And in reality, that's one of three people of color that are actually in their organization. But it makes us as a consumer feel good because we see that they have a chief um, diversity officer. You know what right. I'm saying? as opposed to actually diversifying the staff beyond just that single position. Just for clarity's sake, right. I just want to say PMA stands for Positive Mental Attitude. It's a, a coin termed by the fabulous Bimini Bamboulash. You know what you're talking about makes me think of a recent news story involving FKA Twigs and Gail King. Many people are really frustrated with Gail King for asking FKA Twigs, who is in a lawsuit right now alleging that her ex-boyfriend Shia LaBeouf was abusive towards her, sexually abusive and manipulative. She appeared on CBS this morning speaking to Gail King, and Gail King asked her the question, why did she stay? Gail prefaced the question by saying, you know, this is a question I often wonder if I should ask. And nobody who's been in this position likes this question, and I often wonder, is it is it even an appropriate question to ask? Mm-hmm. And you know the question is, why didn't you leave? Yeah. And I think we just have to stop asking that question. I know that you're asking it, like, out of love, but, like, I'm just going to make a stance and say that I'm not going to answer that question anymore because the question should really be to the abuser, why are you holding someone hostage with abuse? And many people are now coming out and sort of attacking Gail and not granting her the grace of saying, you know what, this might have been something that her and FKA talked about before the interview. And Gail might have preempted her and said, is it okay if I ask you this question? And Twigs might have said, yes, it's okay. And here's how I'm going to respond to you in the hope of creating a future in which a question like this is not asked. I think there was a lot of definitely accusing Gail versus kind of seeing Gail as potentially creating a teachable moment and being aware of it. And I think that kind of speaks to what you're talking about. I look at that moment and I'm like, a lot got accomplished through that interaction. And there's a world in which Gail was aware of the greater good of asking what seems like an antiquated question. Definitely. I mean, it's it's a great way of doing it because a lot of people need to see the progress. They need right. the setup. And then you need the setup in order to show how to dissolve. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. And a lot of people just don't get that. Completely. Let's go back to your early life now. How would the Gabriel of today describe the Gabriel of 20 plus years ago? Oh, <laughs> me at eight years old. Oh, God, the buck teeth. Me. <laughs> it was a, it, it was a mess. Oh, my God. My ears were definitely sized for a 20 plus year old <laughs> at a very young age. I was I was shy. I was shy. I was a shy but adventurous kid just running around. That'd be me at eight, I'd say. And how did that shyness manifest itself? Were you able to make friends easily? Were you a social kid? Were you very family oriented? You know, it, I ended up becoming shy because our family was so different from the status quo that was introduced to us in the educational system. You know, at this time we had moved from the Bronx. We had gotten a very, very, very small house in Yorktown, which at the time was like very like low, 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 low middle class. It's changed a lot in recent times, but that's what real estate is supposed to do. You know, at the time, that's that's not what it was. And I was going to school with lots of white kids and it, it was fine. I, I made friends, but there was no relatability. You know, it was being the kid from the Brown family with big ears and buck teeth that spoke Spanish and nobody else spoke Spanish. And, you know, we were also lower income in a town that at least in our school district, that was pretty wealthy. So, you know, I had problems identifying and relating with others based on class and, and based on race. So then where does the queerness come into all of this? Because it sounds like you were already feeling other eyes. And on top of that, I imagine you're coming into your queerness or you're either aware of your queerness. T tell me sort of the role that queerness played and how you discovered it within your own identity. Definitely. I mean, I think it took me some time. I, I know a lot of people and a lot of people I've talked to, a lot of people that I'm friends with, their queerness is the primariness of, of their otherness, right? It's, it's the facilitating agitator of, of change in their early life. But for me, there was just so much going on. And on top of that, you know, let's just say 13, 14, at 13, my dad got sick and at 15, he died right before my 16th birthday. So sort of right in those formative teenage years, I'm angsty, but I'm angsty about things that I have good reason to be angsty about. You know, mm -hmm. I'm pissed off about, you know, my dad being sick and all these other things. My sexuality is just like an afterthought. So it's not until after my dad dies and after I lose my hearing that I'm able to sort of tune everything out, you know, like God by chance tuned half of it out. <laughs> so it's like, at least I was halfway there. I still had half my hearing and I'm just really grateful that at least while I was at my lowest there, having lost my hearing, having just lost my dad, it forced a level of introspection onto me that I think sort of saved my life. I was able to see, you know, more of who I was and I channeled that into the rest of my life. I took that, that teenage angst and I just put it into being counter to the system. It just wasn't until I got older that 
I made my Rage Against the Machine a little bit more productive. <laughs> In a 2018 tribute post around Thanksgiving, you wrote of your father, who passed on in 2008, quote, I was a difficult son. He was a difficult father. Can you unpack that very dense sentence for me? Yeah, you know, it's tricky. I think with me and my dad, we always had an early dissonance. The thing that I, I wish a lot more people in the queer community would, would take into consideration if it applies to them is that I think a lot of us have, you know, butted heads. Some of us have mended, and that's phenomenal but some of us are still sort of holding that disdain. I think if my dad didn't die, I would still probably hold that disdain. I think that his death sort of forced that introspection onto me at the same time that I lost my hearing. So for the people that haven't forgiven their fathers, I get it, you know? But the reality is that I think what I was able to do was that I was able to, after his death, remember that, you know, he barely had a father and that he had barely an outline of a father and he was operating off of that. And, you know, his shortcomings are his fault, but also the fault of his father. Mm. And when you start to look at the generational failures, we start to really understand how our parents' failures weren't personal. They just simply lacked the tools. And the best thing that we can do is just try to be supportive of the youth and the male ego as it exists in the future in order to just break the cycle. And again, that sort of ties back to what we were talking about with RuPaul and, you know, trying to get somewhere with the PMA. It's just, especially when you're talking to men, if you're just going to be a brew with them, you're, you're just going to harden the shell. And a hard shell on a man has really gotten us nowhere. Concur. In a 2020 interview magazine profile, you discussed the fear of lack of acceptance with regards to your sexuality, specifically from your family, which I imagine instills this concept, whether conscious or unconscious, that queer is bad. Do you remember if and how you began to untangle that and come to realize that queer is not bad, queer is powerful? It definitely was very clear that queer is bad. <laughs> like, let's just start there. Like, there was no subtleties. It was like, you're going to hell. Um, it was like, yeah, maybe, but I'll be wearing Prada, right? <laughs> but, um, I love that. In our family, we have so much pride in, in making one another proud, not just making one person proud. It's about making your grandmother proud, your sister proud, your mom proud, your dad proud, your cousins proud. And reality is that I, you know, continued to, to date women for the longest time. And I was very honest with them. I was very honest in terms of like, hey, you know, I've also dated guys. Here's what it is. You're not getting a clear answer. But like, if you want to date and I want to date, you know, then then let's date. But if you're cool with that, cool. If not, no. So I've always been very honest with the women that I've dated. I'm very proud of that. But when it came down to my family, you know, it's it's still a Roman Catholic family. And tradition has, you know, kept our family alive or abiding by the tradition, you know, was survival. So to see them start to actually face me slowly breaking off from that, I think definitely created a lot of fear for them for my well-being because they only know survival within the text of traditionalism. So at what point did you, because I imagine with that, that becomes sort of indoctrinated into how you view queerness in some way. Because it's like, yes, you understand that that is the system with which they have been taught how things are. But I'm just curious, like right. how you began to untangle that, because with recognizing that 
okay, I understand you've been taught this way and you're teaching me that way because that's the line of succession here. But right. was it from media or how did you begin to see a narrative that sort of made queerness out to be something that was something to take pride in? I don't think there was any external source that made me believe that there was something to take pride in and queerness because I think that shame was so deeply built in me. But I think that I just had this very strong belief that I had the right to take pride in myself as I existed. And I think that that pride overlapped anything else. It wasn't about anybody making me feel that this was okay. It was about more the fact that I know that I'm beyond okay. I know that I'm amazing and whatever is attached to me is under the uh, umbrella of amazing. Mm. And it's just that level of just narcissism, honestly. Like sometimes narcissism is bad, but sometimes you need that in order to survive. It's, it's definitely a shield. And I just, I push forward with that. Mm. I definitely for a while thought that, you know, I had to be, you know, married with a man and I don't know, celibate, even though I was married and, and drive a Honda or something and like wear like turtlenecks in order to be accepted. But it, it took, I mean, I would say it took until recently to sort of abandon that. I didn't even feel coming out to my family until I was 26 and in a relationship because I didn't want to be perceived as, I don't know, sexually tumultuous or something like that. Mm. It's, it's, the reality is that, you know, when my dad died, I became like the caretaker of my family. Me and my sister both went to work at 15. Like I was hustling to like help pay the mortgage. And I think that the delay in me coming out was because I just couldn't bear to put my family into more pain, especially now that I had taken the role as basically primary caretaker. So to sort of just want to protect my family from another threat delayed my coming out by 11 years. Hmm. Let me ask you some more about that. During our pre-interview, I asked you what topics you specifically wanted to discuss, and you brought up the casual approach within the queer community to homelessness. I know this is an issue particularly close to your heart as both a homeless shelter worker and someone with proximity to homelessness. In your 2020 interview profile, yeah. you said, quote, I am like 15 going on 16 years old and scared of being homeless because they were going to foreclose on our house. I immediately had to start working, start hustling, doing things that are not necessarily done in daylight in order to obtain income for the sake of trying to keep our day-to-day -day going, but at the same time, still not being able to be myself, end quote. And I'm just wondering if you could share a little bit more sort of about your journey um, with regards to homelessness. I was hugely, hugely afraid of becoming homeless because it was very much a huge reality in our lives, a huge reality. You know, I remember going outside of our house, a very, very modest, humble, small house, and, you know, seeing this woman in a red Prius, I'll never forget it, just snapping photos. And my first reaction is like, what the fuck is this woman doing? Like this, nobody drives around here unless they live in this neighborhood. And then I remember that she was from the bank and that they had sent her out to gauge the value of the house for pre-auction. So I'm, you know, I'm 15 and I'm studying real estate law in order to figure out how what's our loophole what how many mortgages can we skip what percentage of the payment do we have to make on what day just to extend our hold on the house even if it's by a day you know just and my mom is still very much grieving my father you know my sister is in college and i'm studying new york state real estate law and i'm fortunate enough that i was able to get a grip on it and and figure out how to play the game but that's just because 
of chance and a lot of extraordinary lineups. You know, there's so many families that are becoming homeless every single day. And it was definitely a huge fear, especially as a queer child, because it was like, okay, I'm going to get us in a place where we can avoid foreclosure, but then they're going to find out and then I'm going to be homeless. And then it's like, okay, so why do I keep my family in this house? Might as well just embrace the foreclosure now so that at least like, it'll just be easier that way. So at least I won't be as upset when they have a house and I don't, at least we will all be sort of without anything. Right. So it'll be easier. At least that way, if I'm forced to separate from my family, I'll know that at least we're all on the same page. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the reality of a lot of Americans, a lot, a lot of Americans that just people, I don't think people really understand the depth of um, how wide ranging it is. Did you have any reaction to, there was a recent tweet from the MTA kind of proudly announcing that they had removed some of the the benches from the subway platforms. Yeah. And it received a lot of blowback online from people saying there are a lot of people, including homeless, pregnant women, et cetera, that rely on those benches. And I think that's kind of seems like just an example of the ways in which the government sometimes seeks to erase homeless people's existence or tries to subjugate them in ways to make them feel feel less than or, or or make them feel unseen. Did you have any reaction to that particular instance or just instances in which the government has not done enough to either recognize or show up for homeless people? It's a problem all over the US and it's a reflection of of classism and of ableism. You know, it, just to be so comfortable to take out benches that you know the elderly need, that you know somebody with just crutches or a sprained ankle whatever it is, it's it's a staple and it's an expectation of public space. Period. When you don't put benches down, you are simply stating that anybody that is not at 100% capacity financially or physically, whatever it is, is just not welcome there. It's just disturbing. I mean, the, we see the same thing when we allow corporations to put spike strips or you know, basically steel spikes underneath you know, two foot spaces that, that there might be like a little canopy over an awning over. For what real reason? just other than to say, fuck you, quite frankly, to certain homeless individuals. You know, a lot of people have this idea of what a homeless man or a homeless woman look like, when in reality, it's an NYPD officer, it's an EMT, it's your teller, it's that person that their house caught on fire and they have bad credit and now they can't lease an apartment, even though they have income. You know, I have these types of families in my shelter And people are just so stuck on what the idea of homelessness is Mm. that they can't branch it out to really understand that it's you, it's, it's me. It's these, it's the same quality individuals that we are that are being affected by this. You are the executive director and founder of the Deaf Collective, an organization that I encourage anyone listening to seek out and follow. You lost half of your hearing when you were a teenager, as you mentioned. I think one of the interesting things in sort of, you know, I was I was putting the bio together for you and I wanted to make sure to say deaf and hard of hearing because I think that many people don't understand that there are variants within disability. It's not singular, right? There's many people within right. the spectrum, not only of deafness, of, of all kinds of disability. I'm wondering about your your own personal journey with losing part of your hearing. And then also just if you feel like too often disability is treated like a monolith within conversations around disability. You know, we, we've created such a stigma around it, around that word disability, that it's scared some people with disabilities from wanting to identify with a disability because they don't want to be treated differently. They don't want to be seen differently. And the reality is that sometimes when you declare 
yourself of having something that you're dealing with, whether it be hearing loss or Timmy Shaman's, you know, ostomy bag, whatever it is, you're just so scared of having people treat you with kid gloves. You know, we, we as a society tend to infanticize instead of just heighten our respect. We sort of do this uncomfortable coddling because we aren't really emotionally taught with how to handle that within the context of our society. Yeah, I, I think a lot about, you know, we were talking earlier about disabilities specifically with regards to fashion. And I feel like so often when we talk about disability in fashion, we'll see, you know, one disabled model on a runway and you'll see a headline that right. will spring up that says, oh, this runway show featured so much diversity. They had a number of plus size models and they had uh, models of color and differently abled models. And so often or too often than not, it's tokenization, right? It's, it's one single person with disability. And also, they're being sort of siphoned off as to say that we're going to talk about them not through the lens of fashion, but through their inclusion within fashion. I'm just wondering what your perspective is in sort of seeing conversations like that happen in which you want to celebrate the small victories that happen because fashion is one of those industries that's so fucking behind on this, while also saying this isn't enough. This isn't enough, and this is not potentially the right approach to it. Right. I mean, I I've had certain brands, certain labels like reach out to me trying to do collaborative efforts. And the the first thing I'll ask them is, you know, where's your organizational chart? You know, what who's that leadership? Where, where's everything at? Include a picture if you want to, so that we could see what's actually going on. And you have to also look at the money, you know, let's just say, okay, they're including XYZ. Let's just say that they're doing it just for the label. Let's just say that that's okay, right? Let's just say in this situation that that's okay that they're just doing this inclusivity just performatively, how much are those models getting paid? If you've also got Bella Hadid on the walkway, let's just say we have one disabled model. Okay, if she's been around for 15 years and Bella's been around for five, six, 10, whatever it is, why should Bella necessarily get paid more? So you also have to look at leveling the field economically. If you're not gonna be paying these models, at least semi-proportionately, they're not gonna be in a position to better themselves, better their portfolio, better their careers, and continue booking jobs. You have to look at what's actually going to be equitable. So when certain labels reach out to me and they're like, oh, hey, would you join us? My response is gonna vary on the label, but I'm gonna say, hey, you know, you don't seem to have any true interest in creating an equitable and just society for my people being people with disabilities, people that are deaf or hard of hearing, people that are brown in city communities you don't have any real interest in us. You have interest in your optics, including us. So no, I'm not interested. You know, we have to look at how models are getting paid and how deep the level of inclusion is. And are we actually leveling out the playing field? You know, those are the questions that have to be um, addressed by these labels. Let me ask you a question. I'm not trying to play devil's advocate here. I'm really not. I'm just curious if in those situations you ever say to yourself, okay, the intention does not feel genuine from this company. Is there a world in which... I feel as though I, Gabriel, can help them see the error of their ways. I understand that that's sort of putting the task on you, which is maybe not the end goal here, but I'm wondering if you ever have that inclination to say, okay, I don't think their heart is in the right place right now, but there's a world in which, given the resources that they have, I can be an instrument in helping them to readjust their focus and actually make what was perhaps not a real genuine effort, I can help turn that into something genuine. Definitely. I mean, look, my, my goal is definitely not to just show up and be a bitch. <laughs> like, I want to take any opportunity 
quite frankly, I want to take any opportunity that I can be a genuine or not. If I can, if I can foster that into something more long-term and meaningful, then I'm going to do that. But the reality is that addressing these things, especially in something as large as a fashion label, these are full-time jobs that require multiple people. And, you know, I, I get conflicted, you know, you get to a point where if you're good at something, never do it for free. So it's like, am I going to act as their disability consultant and give them literally hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of consulting just to try to make them woke? You get into sort of like a catch 22, right? Like, do I make them woke? And do I bring them to that level to get for a company that's corporate fashion and not really that equitable. Do I have to wait for that? You know, what do I do? Do I wait until they hand over 20% equity to me? How much equity is, is proportionate to what they owe to these communities? Right. It's a definitely a huge conversation. Hmm. One of our agreements in you coming on this podcast is that all social materials would include closed captions. We had actually begun captioning our social posts just a few weeks earlier after several people had made similar suggestions. I'm now trying to include captions for all video content that I put on Instagram, not just podcast related. And I see others doing this too. And it's a wonderful thing, obviously, right? Accessibility. But I'm wondering what your thoughts are on this on a macro level. The reality is this does take longer to post something with captions captions, largely because Instagram has not yet created a way to easily add captions to posts. And so I'm wondering what onus you think is on these platforms to better equip people whose intentions are to provide captioning on their posts and and to reach a wider audience and make their content more accessible. It would be great for platforms like Instagram to come out and say, hey, just click this button and we will auto-generate captions. I see that happening on YouTube. It's frustrating. I'm happy to do it. It's something I want to make time to do, but I can see there being people out there that find an excuse not to do it because they feel it's too difficult. Right. I I think that's a really good company to reference Instagram because Instagram does have this technology and they use it in their side app called Threads, but they limit the amount of time that you can post a video for it to be transcribed and captioned. So they're basically just trying to limit the amount of people that are doing it for longer videos, videos that are longer than 15 seconds. So they're offering this service in a very marginalized capacity. And that's just, I think, a huge example of their focus on trying to create any type of meaningful effort towards accessibility for the deaf and hard of hearing community. I'm not going to spend my life talking about Republicans because it's never going to be worth it. But something that we have to look at Republicans for, or at least just sort of look at, not for, because that's continuous, but look at them in reference to, as I think what, what they're able to do is that they're able to, at least if they feel like they're being shut out, they create. I want the deaf community to potentially take that approach or just take that approach altogether mm-hmm. is that we need to have people that are allies with us and part of our community to go ahead and be willing to say fuck this organization because reality is that if we actually were to create something on the side and just get enough users into it instagram would come out buy it and then include it anyways right so it's just about making sure that we're putting our efforts into the best direction because putting a couple fiery hashtags into instagram doesn't do anything if anything instagram is happy about it because they have further engagement right on their platform with these hashtags right. you know people um really need to think about the data stream and what actually makes corporations act mm-hmm. and it's 
diversity in the marketplace. Right. People want to gobble shit up. I do just want to say for people out there that are wondering about potentially putting captions into their material and sort of the benefit of it, since I've started doing that several weeks ago, the amount of messages I get every single time I add captions never ceases to amaze me and sort of opening my mind up to how many people are deaf or hard of hearing or in a place where they cannot hear whatever it is that is being said on social media. And so I think it's important that people start to uh, just realize that they might think, oh, I'm speaking to this audience, but there are people that are accessing your content online that you might not know their individual experiences and how they consume your content. And so I just want to encourage people to take that extra time to do it. I think it's really, I found it so deeply rewarding so far, the number of messages I've heard from people saying, I can now access the content that you're making that I could not before. Right. And you're going to get people being loyal. You know, people are going to loyally follow you because you are loyally showing them that you see them and that you are treating them as an equal. Would you say that there's a lot of gay people in the US? Would you say that that content is out there? Yes. yes. We outnumber the gay community. Like we double them. There's there's about 5% are openly identifying as LGBTQ on the spectrum plus mm -hmm. within the US. We have over 10% in the US. But when you look at the amount of content, the amount of creators that we have and our amount of content compared to the gay community, it's extremely fractional, you know, but we are out there. Our populations are out there. We're almost 500 million strong in the world, you know, at least for brands and for Instagram, the incentive should, even if it's just the greed of dollars, they should see that there's a market here. Right. And at the right. very least, there's still people that are still people that are willing and wanting to interact. Completely. You know, there's simply no negative um, that comes out of making your content accessible. Right. And I just want to say, too, for people out there that feel, well, I don't know how to integrate captions into my video, me neither. Put the closed caption in the comment section. Like, you have the tools to make this happen, even if you are not a video editor or do not necessarily feel technologically inclined. I am certainly not technologically inclined, and it's very easy to go in the caption and write closed captions. Definitely. You are someone who is on social media quite a bit, just like myself. Do you ever feel too logged on? I was reading this paragraph long response that Khloe Kardashian gave on Instagram <laughs> after a troll accused her of controlling who her sisters hang out with. And I got to the bottom of her word scramble and I just felt so sad, not for her, but for the time that I'd lost reading that. And I just came to this conclusion that was like, Evan, you're too logged on. Do you ever feel that way? You know, I do. I luckily I don't write those types of responses anymore, but I feel for Chloe because I have been there and I listen, I, I'm still a human being. And if you come after me and my sister, you're gonna hear it. It's just that simple. I'm still her brother, I'm still protective, and I'm still just a guy from the Bronx. And I'll let you have it in a very accessible content manner. But yeah, no, I just there there definitely is such a thing as too much. I think you gotta pick your medium, like where you got to pick your platform and then pick your amount of time on it. Cause I think, especially as you platform hop, it's like it, the same concept behind, like if you take a bite of something different, you can continue eating because you trick your brain because every taste is different. So like you can literally eat nonstop if every single mouthful is different and it's the same concept. It's like, okay, Instagram, 15 minutes, Twitter, 15 minutes, right. TikTok, 15 minutes. And you end up in this roundabout. That's like, where have I ended up? Yeah. You know? I do just want to say, I feel like you defending your sister is a little bit different than Khloe Kardashian defending 
Kendall Jenner, but I understand <laughs> the inclination to like Definitely. defend one's family. What's one thing the media, and I hate the blanket term the media, so please understand I'm aware media yeah. is not a monolith, but what's one thing, let's say that the media in general gets right about your sister and one thing that you think they get wrong? Um, They get so much wrong. <laughs> I think, you know, I, I just like, the, the reality is that when you're too true to yourself and when you really just don't have an ulterior motive, it's just not an interesting story, you know? And I think that there's media and I think there's journalism. And then I think that there's fableism and the fableism is just widely distributed, you know? It, it definitely took me a while to get used to like headlines that were like, is AOC from Mars? Like find out at 5 p.m. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on? But just, you just get used to it. The reality is that the proof is in the pudding and the actions speak for themselves. You know, and that's just what it is. I don't humor anyone's speculations. It's just, you know, what actually happened. We're not going to argue about what's going to happen. Just look at the scoreboard, look at the track record, and that's what it is. Is it weird for you as a fan of Drag Race to see how many of the Rue girls fan out to see that that your sister is watching the show? I mean, I feel like that's just like so many uh, paradigms brought together. I mean, I think as a queer person, I would love for RuPaul to also be a safe space <laughs> where like <laughs> I can just avoid everything. Yes. So it's like, oh, you're in my place. I mean, get out. <laughs> Do your cameo and then leave. <laughs> this is this is my race. Get out. <laughs> But like it could it could it could be worse. It's definitely it's definitely interesting. I would love to know what Katya thinks. Definitely shout out to Katya and shout out to Hosier. Please tag Hosier. I just want him to say hi to me at least once. Fair. Matt has a question now. I'm gonna throw it over to him. So we're talking a lot about being logged on and dealing with everything that's going on, just the kind of state of the world. And it's clear to see we're at a point where we can feel like there's no end in sight to the pandemic, right? It feels like with the vaccine rollout and shifting things, possibly new strains, that it seems like it goes on forever. But you seem like a very positive and like hopeful person. I'm curious, what's something that gives you hope in this time of, you know, isolation and just feeling overwhelmed? Is there something you look to that is promising that really gives you hope? You know, I think, I, I think just mitigating expectations helps just as much as having something to look forward to. You know, everyone's like, oh, I can't wait to be back in the club. And it's like, no, reality is, is that when the club is packed, you're going to go in, you're going to get social anxiety because you haven't done it in two years, or, you know, and then you're going to walk out, but you're going to have like a, a few cute selfies. That's, that's what it is. You know, yeah. I think is if we just started just accepting that, you know what, things aren't going to be exactly the way they were, but life can still be good. That, that's going to bring us to a much healthier place. I think we just need to sort of change the dialogue of missing the past. For me, I mean, it definitely sucks. But what I'm hopeful about is being able to have more time with people that I'm close to, being able to have more meaningful time. Quite frankly, I hope we all gain a ton of weight and that we can all stop judging each other as much because everybody's got their quarantine 15, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. I, I think we're we're at a point where we're all really emotionally vulnerable and we're all fairly weak in some capacity and i think that that's something to be celebrated about because it's very rare that you get an opportunity for so many people to be bleeding and to let one another see each other bleed if you will yeah. growing up that was a big thing for me it was like never let them see you bleed it's always about being stoic and just holding tight 
but I think that there's something really beautiful about all of us sort of just being in the boat at the same time. And I really um, hope and I'm optimistic that the message of just kindness and just not jumping to assumption and, you know, having ha had this collective trauma that we will get to points where we just give each other the benefit of the doubt of, you know, maybe they're just going through it. Maybe they're just having a bad day. You know, I used to, it reminds me of like Lady Gaga when she first, when um, she first came out and she's all about like kindness and acceptance. And I'm like, who is this bitch? She's so weird. And then she's like, we're talking about kindness. I'm like, I just like, I just didn't get the stick in the beginning. I was too busy suppressing my gayness. But then like now, like now that I have a platform and I've, I've had a little bit more time to listen to her. I just, I get it now. I understand how you could have this enormous power and just want to say something as simple as, you know, be kind, because that really is, you know, the, the ultimate message you can send, I think. Absolutely. And I think yeah. someone like her, and I know Harry Styles is another celebrity that has a similar mantra of, of spreading kindness. I think that with the world we're living in today and the way Stan culture exists, when you have that figure at the top of the, the chain within their fandom, putting out a message like that, I do think it, I'm not saying they're that every fan of Lady Gaga's is disseminating nothing but kindness into this world. But I do think <laughs> that when you have that figurehead, whatever you want to call them at the top there, with a message that clear and, and one of such goodness, I do think it sort of activates her her fan base to to not maybe necessarily live their lives a certain way, but I do think it, it affects things. I do think it's important, and I get the whole eye-roll equality of it. I roll my eyes at it quite a bit. But I also kind of am like, you know what, like maybe I'm not the person that needs to hear this message at this point or this juncture of my life. But there probably are fans of hers that are so impacted by every word that she says that when when she says be kind, they literally go out into the world and change their way. Speaking of Gaga, have you had the Chromatica Oreo? I haven't. I have not. I have not. I have not. But I was really happy with the album. I was really happy with the album. Um, but what does it taste like? Is it good? It's not good. Um, and <laughs> That's a wide consensus. I was yeah, scared and, to say and it. you know what? I didn't like that people were saying that at first because I, I didn't understand because it is, it's the vanilla version of the Oreo. So people kept saying, oh, like, I just don't like the taste of it. And I was like, that doesn't make sense. It's just an Oreo. Like, it's an alternative flavor right. of Oreo that exists. However, I will say... It's got so much of the cream in the middle, like, and I'm not a double stuff person. It's just like yeah, when I either. have it right now, what I do is I open it and then I take like half of the green, the inside of it, and I throw that away and then I can have it. The cookie <laughs> itself is good. Also just like it aesthetically, like the way that the cream is inside of it, it's like, it, it, it just looks weird. Like it looks very handmade yeah. in a bad way. Oh no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like when somebody like, like those YouTube pranks where they take out the Oreo and put like toothpaste or something. Exactly. Oh. <laughs> That's exactly what it looks like. Um, you mentioned the album, favorite song on the album. Oh, um, 911. I think oh. that's just like, that slaps. Good one. Yeah. Know. Any Definitely love for slaps. Plastic Doll? Um, uh, <laughs> No, I'm sorry. I was trying to be nice. It's just like, I know it's like a huge favorite. It just doesn't, it doesn't do it for me. Fair. A couple last questions before you go. I know you are a Buffy fan. Tell me sort of where Sarah Michelle Gellar lands for you, where your entry point to the Sarah Michelle Gellar cinematic universe lies. 
give me give me a quick rundown of of sure. the gamut of her, yeah. her productions. So we have I know what you did last summer, Scream Two, Cruel Intentions, Scooby Doo, The mm. Grudge. Yeah, those would be like that's like the big ones. Definitely a standout in Scooby Doo, but I'm not I'm not gonna say that. I feel like that's just anything Scooby Doo. I can never with love attribute as someone's high in their career. Um, which I'm not doing here. I don't want to get yelled at. Um, I'd say, I mean, Cruel Intentions slaps. I mean, just Buffy itself, just iconic, you know? And are you like someone, are you a Buffy completist? You've seen the whole series? I think I have, but not all in order. Like, I, it would definitely be like on the list. Like when I came home from school, it would definitely be like something that was always on. So I think I watched it in the same capacity that I watched Charm, just like totally left and right, like SVU status, like just all mixed up. But I was actually going to start it the same day that I saw the news about um, Joss Whedon. And then I was like, do I start streaming it and give him his royalty of like 0. 0.2 pennies? And I'm like, no, I can't morally do it. So I just started streaming it again today, but I got a torrent of it. <laughs> but I'm happy to donate $5 to whoever's charity you want. Like, but I just couldn't, I couldn't reasonably give him some royalties. Yeah, I think one of the things I'm struggling with right now as I work on this book is sort of any good thing I say about this show is often largely attributed to him. But I'm really trying to keep the focus on when I like a certain something within the show, I always am like, well, the lighting was really good in this moment, or I like the fight choreography, <laughs> or the acting choice that was right, made here, right. or kind of looking at it as him being a, a part of something bigger. I want to end by chatting about the state of the Democratic Party, a little bit of a pivot from Chromatica, and how or if we work to unify it more. It's obvious we're seeing a splintering in the Republican Party between Trumpism and more traditional conservatism, but there's equally a splintering in our party between moderates and progressives, for many, they saw Joe Biden's candidacy and eventual presidency as more of a compromise than a solution. How do we go about uniting a party that often feels not ideologically aligned? You have to continue to remove the people that are fan favorites because they're corporate favorites and replace them with people that are not funded by any corporations. And suddenly we'll see the DNC become progressive. and. Progressive, I think, is such a sad term to use because it's really just about caring for your citizens. You know, it's like, oh, AOC is so progressive. She's so radical left. Sorry that the girl wants people to have fucking health care. I'm sorry. Like, oh, that's if that's so progressive, then what the fuck is wrong with you? What's nor what's middle ground to you for people just to, like have affordable cancer payments that don't make them go bankrupt? Right, like, right. What, help help me understand. You know, I want to understand what part of caring for others is radical. And of course, nobody can ever answer that for me. And it's like, how are we going to afford it? Have you looked at the defense budget for starting wars that we don't need to be in? Okay, how do we afford that? But we make it work. So it's like, why can't we just, I don't know, maybe like help, like take people to the doctor, God for fucking bid, you know? And these are the things that people want. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's okay. If you're not going to give them health care, then of course they're going to vote for the Republican that says, I'll lower your taxes. Because, yeah, I'm going to need as much money as I can get to pay my medical bills. Right. You know, and people aren't really understanding this. People, especially coastal cities like L.A., San Diego, New York, Boston, those types of Democrats um, forget to be empathetic to what is middle America, which is a lot of poverty. You know, it's a lot of people that 
of course they're going to vote for the candidate that says, hey, you know, we'll give you a tax break, we'll give you some more money, because they're not getting any help from the Democratic Party. Right. You know, the Democrat, yeah. the Democratic Party expects votes because, you know, they put rainbow dividers in their binders for the, for the Pentagon budget. You know, it just it's not enough. You know, like you had movement in 2010. You had movement with Barack Obama. But what's your next endeavor? Essentially, the DNC hasn't declared their next endeavor right. for the public good. And then you have people like Joe Biden campaigning on cancel student debt to cancel 50,000 to, uh, I don't think we can do that, then I don't think you can win the next election, you know? And people always say, Gabe, you can't say that. That's, you know, you don't want to manifest that. And yeah, I'm all about good vibrations and your chakras and shit. But reality is, is that people need to know that if you're not going to deliver, people are going to fucking hate you. You know, it's very simple concepts that Democrats, especially centric Democrats, just aren't getting. And they're they're really wondering how they could lose the youth vote. And it's because even the youth that are poor are going to go for the candidate that's going to give them more money to help try to stay alive. Because that's what I would do if I was a 50, if I was still 15 and I could vote in order to keep my house out of foreclosure. You know, I would go for the guy who's going to give me some more money because that's what I need to stay alive because society isn't helping me. Hmm. Let me end with the $64,000 question. Any possibility of a future government position that you would seek to run for? I mean, anything's possible. It's definitely not something that I'm actively pursuing right now. I think that if I could run for a position and do it meaningfully and truly be the best candidate, then I would step in because at that point, it's really the highest form of public service. You know, it's, it's, I wouldn't ever allow a seat to go by default to somebody atrocious, you know, but at the same time, I want to make sure that the people that are ready to do this for the long term are really getting their shot and um, really being installed as, as they should be. So it's not something that I'm looking into right now, but life has definitely taught me that anything is possible. Shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan. Shut Up, Evan is produced by Matt Storm with associate production by Ryan Killian Krause and social media by Sean Ross. An extra special thank you to our Patreon supporters without whom none of this would be possible. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.